There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by The Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, CEO and founder, and I am honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through paying it forward and giving back. Ethical business owners and holistic healers who are determined to create collective change in the world. Once we have a change in consciousness and through collective change, we can become one. My next guest was recommended to me by another guest, and I can totally understand why. A former journalist and teacher turned activist and entrepreneur for the past five years, Jackie Fay has been working in a conflict zone. She's the founder of She Can Try. She Can Try started on the basis of using sports as a vehicle for social change. To launch the organisation, she became the first woman to do six Ironmans on six continents within one year. She Can Try's model is pretty simple. Women who participate in sports often become leaders. Leaders from business to politics to military shape the world in which we live. She wanted to not just empower women who looked like her and were easy to reach, but she also wanted to reach the women who needed it the most and thought if she could train women in Afghanistan, then she could train women anywhere. Jackie's mission is to help empower women who've been oppressed through training and physical fitness, something for many of them they've never had the opportunity to ever do in their lives. Get set to be inspired by Jackie's tenacity and will to create collective change for women who need it most. Welcome to the Ethical Evolution, Jackie. Ah, hi, Bendy. Thanks so much for having me. You are so welcome. Now, can you tell us a bit about your background and who you are? You're currently coming to us from Afghanistan as we speak. But if you could um, fill us in on who you are and what you do um, and uh, what your mission is. Sure. Uh, So the short answer (laughs) uh, to that question is I'm a former journalist and educator turned entrepreneur and activist. But uh, the longer answer, I guess I would start with uh, my upbringing, um, which was in a very conservative area in the south of the United States. And it's funny, you know, in the phrasing of your question, you ask, who are you? Mm. Um, Because truly as a child, you know, I felt like I wasn't allowed to express who I was because I was a girl. Mm. And, um, and, And from a young age you know, outside of school and everything else, I always found refuge in sports. So when I was playing sports, I I felt like myself. Um, And I've also, you know, always had a a really strong curiosity, you know, despite, you know, I have a graduate degree, I'm pretty educated, but I've never been that great of a student. I actually learn by doing. Um, So, you know, going into journalism was really a good fit for me because yeah, I just, I learned by doing. And so that's what you, you know, do as a journalist. So my first career, I was a local news reporter all over the United States. And, um, 
from that experience, I actually ended up getting lined up with a job doing media training for the Department of Defense. Mm. That was not my plan of any sort, (laughs) um, but a friend of mine had connected me um, with the opportunity. So I started doing, you know, work with the Department of Defense, um, doing media training. And, um, and then I moved to New York City. Um, my goal was always to make it as a journalist in New York City. Um, I went to grad school there. Um, I was freelancing in the city. And then literally out of the blue again, um, I, I got an email um, about an opportunity, and this time with the Department of Defense, but in Afghanistan. Mm. And at first, I actually thought it was a scam <laughs> because it was so out of the blue. But, you know, I responded to it. And before I knew it, I was on a military plane headed here. That was in 2015 um, to work on multimedia projects. Um, I've done a couple of jobs out here. So later uh, I was a teacher. Uh, Now I'm managing media projects. But by and far, the favorite job um, that I've had out here is I was an in-house journalist at NATO um, headquarters. Mm. And, um, and, you know, when people would ask me, you know, oh, what do you do out here when I, when I was in that position? You know, I would say that I have the best job in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> it was so much, it was, it was, it was really insightful and I got to see a lot of amazing things, but it was also a lot of fun. You know, some weeks I'd be out with four-star generals and ambassadors, others I'd be sleeping on a cot um, out in a very remote area, only eating local food, and um, they call them meal ready to eat MREs. I don't know if you guys use that term yep. um, in Australia. Um, so, you know, um, but in covering all those stories really in that role um, and just being out here in general, it's really changed me. Like it, it has changed me as a person, you know, working in a developing country that's also a conflict zone. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's been tough at times, mm. but it has forced me <clears throat> to grow immensely. And, um, and one specific story that I really remember being out on, I was in um, Kalat, which is a very remote area in Zabal province in southern Afghanistan. And we were, I was in this meeting with all of these locals and the local education director, you know, the um, civil affairs advisors for NATO were asking the locals, you know, well, what can we do to help you? And what do you think? the education, you know, the Afghan education director, what do you think he asked for, for help? Oh, God, I have no idea. Yeah, so <laughs> um, the, his, his one request um, to help teach children was tents, tents. He wanted tents because they literally didn't have school buildings. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, when he, when he said that they wanted tents, I mean, Coming from a developed country, uh, you know, and one of the most privileged countries in the world, you know, I ju- it just, it opened my eyes to just how, you know, literally half of the world lives. Mm. I mean, it, these, these problems aren't unique to Afghanistan. You know, if you really look at the data, uh, nearly half of the world lives on under five U.S. dollars a day. Wow. Um, and so for me, these experiences have made me so grateful. Um, but, but of course I, I wanted to do, do more. Yeah. And 
I mean, how has it been for you in Afghanistan? So you've been there since 2015. No doubt you would have seen um, a bit of conflict um, happening around you. You know, um, I, for the most part, when I try to explain Afghanistan to people, I've, I've seen a lot of different um, areas. You know, you have, well, because I'm American, so you have the Department of Defense and you have all of these uh, Department of Defense compounds, which are, are relatively secure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, even when I was at NATO headquarters, when I would go out to do these stories, um, I was always in my body armor, um, in a convoy with security. Um, but then I, I've also um, seen, you know, how other organizations work. And then with my own organization later, I'll get to that. Um, you know, so I said, you know, the Department of Defense, you have people that are going out and fighting combat. You have, you know, the diplomats here. And a lot of the diplomats never actually leave the compound where they work. And mm. so, you know, yes, they're in Afghanistan, but they don't actually interact mm. um, that much with the local population unless the local population comes on the compound where they're living. And so for me, I wanted to get out there. So, you yeah. know, I took a break um, and what I'm getting so year confused. So last year I <laughs> took a, you know, I had started my um, nonprofit. So I really wanted, because like I said, sports had empowered me growing up being here. I was exposed to this culture. Um, and, and that was the thing. Women here were not allowed to play sports. Mm. So I knew what it was like to have a suppressed identity as a child. And I found refuge in sports here, you know, women are extremely oppressed, but they have no outlet. Mm. And so I wanted to really work, um, to provide them with the same outlet that I've had in my own life. And so that's when I started my nonprofit, which is called she can try. Um, but you know, although we're training, um, women, uh, in triathlons, so swimming, cycling, and running, it's not about the sports. It's about training these women to navigate the tough issues in their lives, mm. whatever that may be. Um, you know, cause in my work with the military, if I didn't have the outlet that I've had in fitness, um, I wouldn't have survived. I mean, mm. that was, that was such an important, um, outlet for me. And then, you know, so to launch the nonprofit, I did, um, six Ironmans on six continents within Whoa. a year. <laughs> um, and, and I was the first woman to ever have done that. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm proud of my accomplishments, but honestly, when I, when I finished, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel special. <laughs> I didn't, I just, I felt, I felt like, you know, I'm an American woman. I have, I had the, um, the means, I mean, the passport power. I mean, just the fact that I yeah. can go into all these countries very easily to do these races. Uh, you know, I was struggling through um, getting it done. I was couch surfing and doing all these other things. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an American and, and that comes with a whole set of privileges. But there are there are a lot of people in the world that don't have access to these things. And so those are the um, the women that I really wanted to help. But my point was when, when you say, have you seen conflict? You know, when I was, um, I, when I came here just to work by myself um, with my organization, I was living in a house out in Kabul um, by myself sometimes. I mean, sometimes I, this other girl also lived in the house. You know, I had um, Afghan guards. I had an Afghan driver. Um, and I would go around with my athletes. Uh, you know, we rode bicycles in Kabul. We uh, traveled to Bamyan, which is a really safe um, province here. 
um, and I, I did the, our first um, in-country training camp. Um, and we ran uh, the marathon of Afghanistan. So I ran a full marathon with uh, my the top two athletes uh, that I was training in triathlon. You know, we ran that marathon this past October. Um, and yeah, so I've seen both sides. I've seen like the compound life. And I've also lived out in town, dressed like an Afghan, tried to blend in. Mm. Um, and because I don't think people realize that, that, yeah, it's, and you know, it's not always so dangerous here. I mean, really like getting hit by an IED. I mean, it's luck of the draw. It really yeah. is. Mm. Um, and, um, and so, and, and I would say like, you know, when I would, cause I have to compare, you know, when I was with NATO headquarters and I'd go out in a convoy with all this security, I didn't feel any safer than when I was by myself with no body armor with mm. my Afghan driver. And I almost would argue that I felt safer just trying to blend in because yeah. I felt like when you're with this huge convoy, I mean, everyone looks at you, yeah. but when you're just, you know, when I was dressed like an Afghan woman running around, um, no one looked at me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the convoy is like a target, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, so, how, you know, speaking of, um, you know, this training that you do uh, with women and, and helping them have that outlet, um, I know, you know, a physical activity is so great for our mental health and, and just for our overall well-being. And I know you are super fit. Um, how many women have you got uh, in training at the moment? So, well, at the moment, um, you know, we've gotten hit by um, the virus. Mm. And so we were, and we were a small organization here in Afghanistan from the beginning. I mean, because triathlon is an equipment-heavy mm. sport. So in, in January, so I launched the organization, finished the six Ironmans and six continents in June of 2018. In January of 2019, I had recruited four Afghan women to train um, in triathlon. And then over the course of training them for a year, because we were operating on super slim resources, um, you know, I really had to invest in the women that I thought would make it to compete mm. because, you know, I wanted that image of an Afghan woman with her flag crossing the finish line. I needed that one success story as a, as a trickle down effect to recruit women later. You know, mm. we want to grow later, but I mean, we're really in our, in our very early stages. So I wanted that one success story, which I got, you know, so, so we trained the women for a year and, um, and Zainab made history, um, this past February when she crossed the finish line of the Ironman 70.3 in Dubai. And, you know, she carried her flag across the finish line, that video, um, on social media, you know, the videos leading up to them competing in Dubai were, were reaching, you know, upwards of 100,000 people, which I thought was pretty good yeah. for a, a, an organization that had only been operating internationally for a year. Um, but yeah, I, I, when I looked at our um, social media analytics, though, and looked at our audience, um, I would say that the large majority of our audience was American. And so, and I, you know, wanted to reach Afghans. Mm. And so I'm thinking, gosh, but these Afghan, you know, young girls didn't even see her story. Yeah. And that was, and so I was like, I really need to rethink how we're doing this. And because of the way information flows in Afghanistan, um, the, we were looking to send Zainab around the country, um, you know, to the major areas in Afghanistan to do talks at schools um, but of course, the coronavirus has really mm. um, put a put a stop to that. But once once the virus calms down and we're able to move around 
Um, that's our, our next priority is sending her around to schools so she can share her story with the women that can actually, you know, relate to her and see themselves in her and be like, wow, this other Afghan woman did this. I can, you know, maybe it's not a triathlon, but I can also do, do something great with my life despite, you know, everything that society has built around me telling me I can't. And, um, and then of course at the schools, you know, in my mind, I, I want to host like a, like a little race at each school or some sort of fitness training at each school. Um, and then, and our big goal is to get an Afghan woman to the half Ironman world championship. And so, and, and that we were planning to do that this year. I mean, the sports world just got completely yeah. turned upside down. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, we're on freeze mode right now, but we're certainly uh, still working. And, and that's really what has brought me uh, to my next project. Um, and, you know, I, I think I um, briefly mentioned to you when we were talking about me coming on, you know, I'm launching a uh, sports clothing line mm. in 2021. Um, and in that sports clothing line will dump back into She Can Try. And, um, and so the sports clothing line is going to be called One January. Um, and we're launching in 2021 with the promise to the customer that, you know, when you buy our clothes, 50% of the profits go to make the world more equal. And, and I'm really proud of uh, the fact that we actually started with a nonprofit first. Mm. You know, I think a lot of businesses start and then they're like, oh, well, let's come up with this social mission to get people to buy our stuff. You know, um, that was not, I, I wish that money just grew on trees, mm. but after running the nonprofit, uh, you know, we financially have struggled. Mm. Uh, you know, we every single step of the way, I was like, how are we going to pay our bills and how are we going to pay for our training and how am I going to pay for these women to get to Dubai? You know, I mean, we didn't just train in Afghanistan. We had training camps in Spain and we had, a, you know, a couple of training camps, you know, also in the UAE and Abu Dhabi because uh, it was really important for these girls um, to get out and train mm. with other triathletes. And of course, the resources in those places um, are much greater than they are in Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, there's only two pools in Kabul um, that they can swim in and the areas where they can run and cycle. Um, there's not that many. Wow, I can imagine. Um, and I, th I think of us here in Australia, how fortunate we are, you know, like um, yeah, the amount of swimming pools we have available to us and, you know, the space we have to train is incredible. So it, that must be a challenge in itself for you. And, my God, I love the mission behind the clothing line. Um, and, yes, we're going to get that out there and get people buying that so that so we can get more women out there training. Yes, I hope so. And, um. And, you know, one other thing um, in Afghanistan is besides the slim resources is, is the stigma around women having control over their bodies. Oh, yes. Uh, and, mo and, and moving their bodies, right? Mm. And so sports in Afghanistan is, is seen as taboo. I mean, running is seen as taboo. Cycling, I mean, the act of sitting on a bicycle saddle, like some – body somewhere, you know, sexualizes that. Mm. And, um, and then the act of swimming is like a whole nother set of bad. And, and that's not everybody um, in Afghanistan, but there are certainly people with these views. And so these women are really, I mean, they are pushing boundaries um, physically, but also in, you know, what is acceptable for women. But 
I, I want to remind, you know, people, like at, at one point, this was also the view, you know, within the United States, maybe yeah. not to that degree, but in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, people thought that if women ran longer than 800 meters, that their uterus would literally fall <laughs> out of their body, um, <laughs> that their legs would get, you know, huge and that hair would grow on their chest. <sighs> like, I mean, this stuff is hilarious when we think about it now, but I'm not making that up. Like, that is literally mm. what people said. And so, you know, the women pushing boundaries during that time, you know, really paved the way for women like me. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Title IX um, in the United States, but that was a law that passed in 1972 that really opened up the door for women in sports and schools. Mm -hmm. uh, it basically said if you're federally funded, um, you know, you have to get equal access regardless of gender. And so, you know, when I was 13, uh, that was in 1999, <laughs> uh, you know, I was in middle school and, um, and I was the only girl on the boys' soccer team. So years later, you know, I benefited from the women that were pushing boundaries in the mm. 60s and 70s. And, and I'm super thankful for them. And, and, and one day I hope there's an Afghan girl equivalent of me, you know, um, that's saying thank you to these women that I'm really trying to empower now. Yeah. And I mean, if we look at the sporting world and we look at, um, you know, Olympics and Commonwealth Games and things like that, um, yeah, you never see um, women from Middle Eastern countries, which is really disappointing. And I know there is so much oppression there. I, I actually have female friends uh, based in the Middle East and I, I hear the stories of, of what they go through. And it's incredible that people are still living like that today. And yeah, yeah, just to break through that and give those women that empowerment to get out there and actually be themselves and, and have that freedom um, is incredible. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think sports, uh, you know, for me personally, um, it, it builds your confidence. Mm. Um, and even, you know, um, even when you fail, you know, having to get back up and get back out there. I yeah. mean, that's life in, in a nutshell. And I, and I guess, you know, what I'm really trying to teach, um, these women is, is that each of us has the power within ourselves, um, to be, you know, who we want to be. Um, but sometimes the systems and the culture and society built around us does not allow that power to come out. So for me, I just want to, you know, guide these women to find that power in, inside themselves. And of course, you know, I'm using the tool that has helped me find that, which is sports. But I, I, I want to give these women the tools that they need and the access that they need. But as far as getting, you know, good at it, that's on them. You know, like mm. that's what being a leader is about. You know, I, and it's been actually really hard. I'm very hands on like when, <laughs> and so I, you know, like, um, but that's not going to help anybody. Right. And mm. so, um, and so I, I, you know, teaching them like you have everything that you need to be successful, like go. Um, and so, and I think that, you know, I mean, our, my, our top two athletes that went to compete in Dubai, I mean, just over working with them, I mean, I've known them for since 2018, mm -hmm. but in, in really working closely with them in 2019 and early 2020 this year, 
Um, I've seen them grow so much over the past year. I mean, just even their, their English has gotten better yeah. <laughs> from, you know, from being with, I mean, when I first started running, um, with, um, Zainab in 2018, um, I was volunteering for another organization that was helping women runners here called free to run mm-hmm. who heavily helped me, um, train these women. Um, but you know, when we would run, we would, ha- I would have to talk so slow, yeah. uh, when we were running, um, so that she could understand what I was saying. And, and now we, we just, we get each other, yeah. um, you know, we've, and, and that's, I think what's also really beautiful about this is, is it was hard to train. It was hard on me. Mm. Um, and then it was also, I know hard on them, but we were in it together. Um, and, and as long as they didn't quit, I wasn't going to quit on them. Yeah, oh, that that is beautiful growth. That really is. Um, now, I want to know, what's been your biggest challenge um, so far in working with these women and how have you overcome it? Uh, so, you know, with She Can Try, it was super hard to run the organization while working my full-time job, um, you know, because I've had another, I had to support myself. I wasn't mm. making any money from She Can Try. If anyone... Uh, has that question in their mind. I didn't make a dime. Mm. You know, actually I was, you know, I donated a lot of my um, money, which I was happy to do. Uh, um, But, you know, that was unsustainable. I can't do that forever. Right. Um, So I was giving up labor for free while working a full-time job, also training myself um, in sports. And, And actually, so the hardest thing was simply saying that it was hard. Um, (laughs) so, so because, you know, I felt like to the outside world, you know, like I said, we had this huge following, um, you know, on social media and, and, and the outside world, everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Keep going. And, but at times I felt like I was dying. Right. And so I'm like, these people are encouraging me to continue killing myself. (laughs) And, um, And so, and, um, and also it made me really, uh, learn about myself. Um, mm. I guess I, I, you know, in, in running a nonprofit, I didn't realize, I mean, I thought that, it, I mean, I knew applying for grants was difficult. Um, but it's really, really hard for a mm. new organization, especially when you're small in numbers, you know, everyone wants to be like, Oh, we're helping, you know, 20,000 women. And I'm like, okay, well, we would help 20,000 women if we had the money <laughs> to it. do it, you know? And so, um, and so, and I, I just, I really realized that I hate asking for money. Um, it's, it's so emotionally exhausting for mm. me. Um, and it's just not in my nature. I've, I've been working since I was 14. You know, I didn't grow up in a, in a house where I got everything that I wanted. So I went to work, mm. you know, I lied on my first job application uh, to go get a job. Uh, I'm a working woman. Uh, when I want something, I work and I go pay for it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's ingrained in who I am. That's not changing. Um, and so our whole journey just really made me rethink philanthropy. Um, and, you know, and if, if someone else is listening to this podcast and you're also working in this area, I'd really recommend um, the TED Talk by David Pallotta. Um, And in, in that talk, he really breaks down how society has trained us to think. You know, we get really mad at people if they make money helping others. Mm. Um, but we are just fine with people making money to help themselves. Yeah. So what choice are we giving people? Mm. We're like, okay, either you're going to be poor and you can help people <laughs> or you can make money and help yourself. Right? So. <laughs> So I, I think, you know, 
for me, we really should start thinking of nonprofits a little bit more like for-profits. And Mm. I don't think, I'm not going to apologize for that. And I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with that because I did struggle and I've done the poor way and it was not fun. Um, And so, you know, I just, I think if you truly want a world that works for everyone, then we have to change this way of thinking. Um, And for me, I had to change my own way of thinking. Like that was, so I had to start with myself because that's also what I had been trained to to think. Um, And and I often um, would confuse morality with frugality, right? Um, and, even, and even when I go back to when I was a journalist, like if I did a story that had to do with a charity or a nonprofit, that was the question I would ask. Mm. You know, how much of people's donations go to the cause? Like I would ask that question. And so, so we have these massive problems. You know, I mean, overall, she can try is fighting for gender equality. That is a massive, massive, massive problem. And mm. that, yet you're expecting, you know, the nonprofits that are fighting these massive problems to live and operate by this really unfair set of rules. And so, you know, for, for example, so let's say you have a, a small organization they get $100,000 donated. Mm-hmm. So let's just use round numbers for simple math. Yep. So 10% goes to overhead, $90,000 goes to the cause. Yep. So if that same organization had a million dollars, but 50% went to overhead, that is still nearly five times the money going to the cause. Mm. And so, you know, at the end of the day, do you think the people on the receiving end of help care? No. <laughs> they don't they don't care. They care that you are helping them and their family. And so and to really help people, you know, you have to invest in someone that's going to help with marketing and you have to invest in someone that's going to help with fundraising. Mm. And you know, for me, I was I was trying to do all these things by myself and not taking any money. Um and yes, I was able to do it, but like I said, we were small in numbers mm. and I I want to grow. And so, and, and for that growth, you know, I think starting hopefully this for-profit will help with that. And then, and also I, you know, I hope that'll help me be able to do this full time. You know, I don't want to have to work 10 jobs to help people. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, just as it's, as David said during his, um, Ted talk, you know, we're looking at the pie all wrong, Mm. you know, maybe to really solve the problem, the pie needs to grow. And and my favorite point that he makes in the talk is, you know, when a philanthropist dies, do you want people to say, well, he or she really saved a lot of money? Or do you want people to say, oh my goodness, that person changed the world, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's the latter. Yeah, totally. And I know um, many, um, successful uh, philanthropists um, here in Australia and I know uh, they're all about impact, not about how much money they've saved. Um, and, yes, to your point about a non-profit, um, I also know some other non-profits here in um, Australia who actually do treat it like a profit business um, and it's really the only way you're ever going to get anywhere uh, because you do need to treat it like a business. Yeah. I, I mean, I learned that the hard way. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, turn our, our business model around so that we can be uh, more successful going forward. I think I can connect you with some people who might be able to help you. Um, oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. 
Um, now, I, I'm curious um, about your your journalistic background. I'm, I think I read somewhere that you were Emmy nominated. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So, um, so you know, in my uh, work with um, the military and with the Department of Defense, you know, I've certainly had my own um, own struggles being a woman in mm. a very male dominated world. And I, and I want to say. You know, saying that even out loud um, is hard because, mm. um, you know, I, I and I see a lot of women in this environment, and they say, "Oh, I've never had any problems," and mm. and I really wonder if that's the truth yeah. or if they're like, like in denial. Um, because to me, the, the problems are so prolific that it, it's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I, my closest friends that I've met in uh, this environment, I would say, you know, one hundred percent of them have had some sort of um, issues. So, you know, with my own issues, I wanted to do a story um, about the double standard Mm. um, within the military. So that was the story I did. um, And it was a two-part series um, that aired um, on the, it was NBC in the States um, in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And, And I focused on the Marine Corps which is the most um, masculine mm. of, of all the armed forces. Um, you know, so, you know, you have Air Force and Navy, which I say, would say are, you know, coming along with integrating women. And, and you have the Army, which has come a long way. But the Marines, you know, they still have, at the time that I had done that story, I think it was 8% um, of Marines were women. And, and the women in that environment were taught a whole different subset of rules than the men. And so I really, um, the story was about that double standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I didn't include my own story, but of course I had a different perspective doing the story. And I, and, and the women, I had focused mainly on two women Marines that were out because a lot of women that are still active duty, you know, they don't want to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And so I found two women that had gotten out and are both doing awesome. Um, and, and they openly talked about it, but they told me, you know, they were like, you were the first person, you know, that, that really made me feel like I was heard. And, mm. and I think I was able to hear them because of my own experiences. Yeah. So, so that was the story that got uh, nominated for the Emmy. I was actually really mad that I didn't win, um, <laughs> but I'm certainly, <laughs> I'm certainly not, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not done. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't really consider myself a journalist anymore I, um, because I, I know so many brave journalists that are, are really doing the tough work. But I, I write all the time, you know, in my journal and I, I want to write a book one day and, and I'm, I'm not done with that aspect of my life yet either. Yeah. Oh, man, I reckon you could write an amazing book just from what, I've, what I know about you already. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you this one, Jackie. Can you define what being ethical means to you? So I've thought about um, this question before. And, and, you know, like I said, one of my jobs here, I was a teacher for Afghans in the Air Force. And I, and I actually used to teach a lesson about determining right from wrong. Yep. And, and I would ask them, you know, what is the best way to figure it out? Is it, you know, based on religion? Is it based on what your government tells you? Is it based on what your culture tells you? Is it based on what your family tells you? And I would tell them, uh, you know, there's no wrong answers. I just want, you know, everyone to tell me what they think uh, is the best system for determining right and wrong. And that's largely 
um, what, you know, ethics are. Um, but for me, I don't believe in any dogma. You know, I mm. believe um, in questioning everything, all systems and all rules. Um, and, and I really believe in seeking the truth. And I have that tattooed on my wrist. Um, it says, Quere Verum, which is seek the truth in Latin. Mm-hmm. But the point is um, always seeking, but never finding. Um, and what's right today could be wrong tomorrow. Mm. Uh, so for me, the ability to constantly adapt and grow, well, that's ethical. Mm. And, um, you know, another, I I listen to TED Talks a lot for inspiration. (laughs) Uh, Another TED Talk um, that I listen to is Emily Nagoski. And um, in the talk, she says, confidence is knowing what is true. Mm. Joy is loving what is true even when it's not what you were taught should be true. Oh, I love that. So. <laughs> that's, that's one of the best answers, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Um, so if people want to find out more about She Can Try and, of course, your clothing line, where can they go to find out more? Um. So, yeah, so right now, uh, if you want to get involved, you know, the easiest thing that you can do is follow us on social media. So um, uh, the clothing line, 1 January, is at 1 January Sports. So that's spelled out, O-N-E, January Sports. Um, And we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know, we don't have a huge following like right now because uh, we haven't actually launched any clothes. I mean, that's how I spend all my free time right now is developing um, our products, um, but we are launching in 2021. So um, if you follow us now, you can, you know, hopefully be one of our early customers. And then if you want to see, you know, what we're doing with She Can Try um, on, again, all the social media channels, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we are at She Can Try, um, but that's T-R-I as in triathlon. So She Can T-R-I. Well, be prepared for your followers to increase. (laughs) Uh, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Now, um, I do have the big question for you now, Jackie. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) What's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? You know, so to come full circle, you know, I said from a young age, I struggled at being who I was and, and I don't want women to grow up in a world or an environment like that. I struggled for a long time to find my own identity because of the systems built up that discourage women. And, and my whole life, people have told me, well, maybe you need to change. Um, and my whole life, <laughs> I've been trying to say, no, it's not me. It's you. Yes. <laughs> so, so I just, I want all women and girls to be able to be who they want, not who society wants them to be. Amen. Oh, yes. I'm so 100% behind that. (laughs) Good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, Jackie, I can't thank you enough for joining me today uh, on The Ethical Evolution. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. If you're an ethical business owner, change maker or holistic healer who's determined to make a change in the world and you need support to spread your message, visit ethicalchangeagency.com to collaborate.
Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. DC, I host the rock podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 